G'day. That was all pretty straightforward, so we might just move to prayer now. <laughs> oh, okay. Maybe not. Um, I think it is a lot more straightforward than we might uh, think at first, but how about we ask God to help us? Uh, help me to explain it, help us to understand it, but not just for our heads, for our hearts and for our hands. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that as we get into this uh, chapter of Daniel, chapter 9, that you'll encourage us, that you'll give us assurance, that you'll give us hope, that you'll help us to look again to Jesus. Uh, we pray for understanding of your word, not just so that we'll grasp what you're saying, but so that we'll know how to respond to you. And we pray that you'll move us to put our trust in Christ and to turn to Christ and to follow him. Amen. Well, when I was uh, a teenager, I think I had a very active prayer life, or at least in the evenings when I went to bed, I would pray and I would try and think of everything that I'd done wrong during the day. And there were usually a lot of things, so to keep me praying for quite a while, uh, because I feared the prospect of dying without having asked for forgiveness for everything that I'd done wrong. And I found myself praying at night time on the bed about the things that I'd done. I found myself praying as I rode my motorbike uh, because I thought just in case there's an accident on the uh, horizon, I should make sure that I've covered off on everything that I've done wrong. And I, I think I was fairly lacking in what you might call assurance of salvation. I'd grown up in a Christian household. I knew about God. I knew about Jesus. I understood about prayer, I, I knew about Easter and Christmas and all that sort of thing. But what I'd failed to appreciate was that I could be forgiven for everything that I'd ever done, everything that I would ever do and everything that I'm doing right now. And I want us to realise, and this part of God's word will point us in that direction, that God has a plan that's way better than us remembering everything we've done wrong and asking for forgiveness. God's plan is to put us right with him through his son, Jesus. There can be assurance of salvation. And you know, that is so important because the people of Israel, the people of God before Jesus, they had an absolutely appalling track record. Let me, let me give you a little bit of a window into this. Uh, they were slaves in Egypt for a long, long time. God rescued them through Moses. Uh, they went out and they headed off toward the Red Sea. You know what happened on the way to the Red Sea? They complained. Uh, God was rescuing them, and because the sea was in front of them and the armies were behind, they complained. Uh, God got them through the Red Sea. They went through on dry land. He drowned all the Egyptian army, and they go out, and there's no fresh water to drink. And so they complain. God makes the bitter water fresh. They drink that, and then they go on a little bit further, and there's no food to it. So they complain. It's a history of complaining when you look at God's people. God eventually brings them to a mountain, Mount Sinai. Moses goes up onto that mountain. God had called them to be his own. He'd saved them. He'd gathered them together. God had presented his covenant to them. Let me read to you from, from uh, Exodus chapter 19, these verses. Verse 4. Exodus 19 verses 4 to 6. If you've got your outlines there, you might want to write that one down because it didn't get onto the outline. Um, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you fully obey me and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. 
Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you are to speak to the Israelites. Now, notice there that God makes a covenant with the people that he's just saved. And the covenant requires them to do something. Did you see what it was? Did you hear what God requires of the people? They need to obey him fully. Now, what kind of a covenant is that? God's entering into a, a contract with his people. They can't keep that. They've shown already before they even get there that they can't keep it. They're going to show it very dramatically soon afterwards because just after Exodus chapter 19, you go to chapter 20 and Moses gets the Ten Commandments from God. Uh, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven or above or on the earth below or in the waters below. And after he's outlined these Ten Commandments to the people, he reminds them again that they shouldn't make any idol, they should not make any image, they shouldn't make any god alongside the true God. And down in verse 23 it says, don't make it for yourselves any gods of silver or gods of gold. Well, Moses goes up on the mountain and he's up on the mountain for 40 days. What takes place while he's up on the mountain for 40 days? Well, read on to chapter 32 of Exodus and we hear this. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come make us gods who will go before us. Come make us gods, they say. What are they thinking? It's only been 40 days. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't even know what's happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron, and he took what was handed to him, and he made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. And then they said, These are our gods, Israel, who brought us up out of Egypt. It's not a good start, is it? These are God's saved people, and what do they do? Everything they're not supposed to, and very, very quickly. And you know, the history of the Old Testament is just a history of events like that. The people seem to do well for a little while, God rescues them, they're very enthusiastic, they praise God, and then they make idols and worship the idols. And they do it over and over and over and over again. To the point where there are occasions when they seem to have forgotten everything about the word of God altogether. God brings prophets to the people and he keeps warning them. He keeps reminding them of the, of, of the promises that he made to them. He reminds them of the covenant promises that they would be his holy people. They'd be his treasured possession if they keep the covenant. See, God only wants the best for his people and they only have to do one thing. Obey him fully. But they can't do it. And it gets worse and worse and worse until the point where God says, I've had enough. I'm going to come and I'm going to send a nation to destroy Jerusalem. I'm going to flatten the temple. I'm going to get rid of the priestly system, the sacrifices. There'll be no more of that. And I'm going to let this nation, Babylon, take you into captivity. The judgment of God. And as the people go off into captivity, God continues to send his prophets. And one particular prophet, the prophet Jeremiah. 
And he warns the people again and again about their evil and about how God's judgment has come upon them. But he holds out a message of hope. And Jeremiah promises that after 40, no, 70 years, the judgment will come to an end. At that point, the people need to pray and they need to turn back to God and God will bring an end to their captivity. Friends, that's background of what we've got here. Because we see in Daniel chapter 9, in the first year of Darius, the son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last for 70 years. He'd been reading it. You can go back and have a look sometime at Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah, he's back in Jerusalem and he sends a letter to the exiles that includes the promise that after 70 years, the, the people of God will be brought out of captivity. And Daniel is reading Jeremiah. He's probably reading that letter. He might be reading more. In fact, I think he is reading more because the word scriptures here is literally the word books. He's reading the books of Jeremiah. And what he discovers from this leads him to pray. Because Jeremiah told the people of God that they should turn back to God and they should turn towards God and they should pray to God. And so in verse 3, he turns to the Lord God and he pleads with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and in ashes. This is no flippant off-the-cuff prayer. This is no, oh, gee, I haven't been praying lately. It's time I got around to it. This is a prayer with a purpose. He bows before God. He covers himself in sackcloth. He rubs himself with ashes. He is fasting. In other words, he's coming before God and confessing his sin. He recognises that God is the great God who keeps his covenant love to those who love him and keep his commandments. And so because he hasn't been keeping the commandments and the people of God haven't been keeping the commandments, he needs to acknowledge that he's sinned and done wrong. And that's what he does. Look at it there in verse 5. It says, we've been wicked and we've rebelled. We've turned away from your commands and laws and we haven't listened to your servants, the prophets. You've spoken your name to our kings and our princes and our ancestors and to all the people of the land. Daniel is confessing on behalf of the people. He's owning up to the fact that his track record has been poor. And so have the other people around him. You'd imagine Daniel's was better than the people around him, but still fell short of keeping the covenant that God had made. Daniel confesses his sin, and that's what the bulk of this prayer is about. He keeps saying to God that he has done wrong, that the people of God have done wrong, that they're covered with shame for their rebellion against him. It's him, it's his ancestors, it's the kings, it's the princes, it's the ancestors. They've all been covered with shame because they've sinned against the Lord. And so he comes in confession. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Well, Daniel doesn't simply confess his sin. He does so with a purpose, and that is he knows that God is a God of love. He knows that God is a righteous God, but he's a righteous God who desires to show mercy. And Daniel appeals to God's mercy. 
And he reminds God of his previous actions to save his people. Listen to these words. Now, Lord our God, verse 15, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned and we've done wrong. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Daniel is asking God to honour his own name. See, when people look at Jerusalem and they try and work out what's going on, Jerusalem is destroyed. The temple has been flattened. There's no longer presence of God there in Jerusalem. God, people will consider that you've failed. They'll think that you've somehow been defeated by these foreign gods, these Babylonian gods. And so Daniel appeals to God to honour God's own name. He prays to God for God's sake. You see it here in uh, verse 17. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant for your sake, Lord. Look with favour on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our, our God, and hear, open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. Now, when you put all this together, Daniel is showing a strong, humble regard for the name of God. Daniel isn't simply confessing his own sin before God, though he's doing that. He isn't simply interceding on, on behalf of his people Israel, though he's doing that. He's saying, God, you deserve better. You deserve people to know that you are the one true saving God that you are the one who makes his promises and keeps his promises. So please act on your promises. Rescue your people. Take them back. Re-establish your city. Rebuild your temple. May your name be honoured. For God's sake, do this. That's what he's praying. And God answers. And uh, unlike sometimes when we need to wait a long time for God to answer our prayers, Daniel's prayers are immediately answered. Look at verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, right? It's in the, in the midst of his prayer, Gabriel the man I had seen in the earlier vision came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. And he instructed me and he said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I've come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. So we need to recognise whatever we make of this little section, um, and it seems very different to what went before, it's an answer to Daniel's prayer. That's made very, very clear. While he's in the midst of his praying, God sends a word back to him through the angel Gabriel that he might have understanding of what's really going on. So there's a connection here, right? We need to see this connection because we, we fall into the trap if we remove the context of trying to understand a vision without its context, we won't understand it. 
And Daniel is being given understanding at this point, insight and understanding. Consider the word and understand the vision, he is told. And what is the vision? Well, 24, 70 sevens are decreed for your people and your holy hill to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. I think in many ways, verse 24 is the central verse of this chapter. This little verse has at its heart God's answer to Daniel's prayer. And it's way better than Daniel could have ever imagined. Because what Daniel is praying is, God have mercy, rescue us, take us home, rebuild the temple, set up the sacrifices again, so that we might come before you and receive daily forgiveness through the sacrificial system, day after day after day after day. What Daniel is praying is, God, please bring us back and forgive us our sins as we keep sinning and sinning and sinning and sinning and sinning. In other words, Daniel's praying that he might go back to what he had at its best. God's answer effectively is no. No. Well, yes and no. I'm going to take you back. You will go back to Jerusalem, well, not specifically Daniel, but the people of God, they will go back there. And yes, the city of Jerusalem will be rebuilt and the temple will be rebuilt and the sacrificial system will be re-established. But that's not God's ultimate answer. We are told that God's ultimate answer involves putting an end to sin, finishing transgression atoning for wickedness. God's answer involves everlasting righteousness, not occasional righteousness, not the forgiveness of sin time after time after time after time, but an everlasting righteousness, the complete end to sin, the complete finishing of transgression, complete atonement for wickedness, and the setting up of vision and prophecy and the anointing of the most holy place. In other words, God's answer is bigger than he could ever have imagined. God's not promising a patch up. God's promising a completely new thing, bigger and better than he could ever imagine. That's the core, I think, of this vision, the 77s. And I'll say a little bit about this and then come back to the numbers when we look at the next bit. But what was he looking forward to? He was looking to God keeping his promise that there would be 70 years and that would be it. God's answer is no, it's going to be better than 70. It's going to be 70 times 7. Let me come back to the numbers in a minute. Let's continue though because when you break this down, there's some unusual things that are said about this number 77. Know and understand this, verse 25. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble, after the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. People of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. 
He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to the sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Now, what do we make of these 77s? And, and what do we make of the seven sevens and then the 62 sevens and then the final seven? How do we work out all this stuff? Well, I can tell you, people have had a great deal of fun working on these numbers. Uh, if, if you work out from the time of the actual decree that the temple is to be uh, rebuilt, which is in 440 something BC, and you go through and, and you count each of these sevens as seven years, and then you, you go forward by 69 sevens, uh, you get to a point which you can add up, and then the last bit, you get to 37 AD. And then you realise that when you count the years the way they used to count the years, which was 360 days, not 365 days, then you've got to take back seven years from that and you get to AD 30. And you get to the death of Jesus and the resurrection. Wow. That's pretty good. Or there's another way you can count. That is, if you start counting in 605 BC and you work your way forward and you, you do a number of different things with the numbers, then you can arrive at the point of Antiochus IV. Now, if you were here previously, you, you'll know that Antiochus IV is the Greek ruler who follows on after Alexander the Great a number of generations, but who is absolutely dead set opposed to the people of God, and he sacks the temple again, destroying it. And he goes in and he sets up a statue of Zeus inside the most holy place. He sacrifices a pig on the altar, turns the temple into a brothel, and there's reports of human sacrifices in the temple. And you can do the dates to go to there. But remember what we've seen already about numbers. Numbers in a book like this are symbols. I don't think that we're meant to count. In fact, we're not even told that they're years. They're 77s. Now, it's reasonable to infer that years could be in mind because there's 70 years being mentioned earlier. But let's think of the numbers as symbols. Remember? The way that you can see certain things just by a number that conveys certain thoughts and ideas. The number 12. What's it convey? 12 apostles, 12 tribes of Israel, 144. 12 times 12 times 1,000. Seven conveys the idea of a week, completeness, cycles of seven. Seven times seven, the year of Jubilee after that. There's all sorts of different connections with numbers. And if we think about the numbers that are on view here, if this is to be a return from exile, that is a 70, but it's to be a complete return from exile, then you could express that as a 70 times seven. And if you think about the way the numbers are being worked out in these details here, yes, you can, you can see that in the midst of these uh, God working out his complete purposes for restoring his people, there's going to be some trouble that will take place. And what do we see of the trouble? Well, we see the anointed one being put to death. We see an end to the system of sacrifices and offerings. We, we see various things happening that I think lead us to understand what Jesus is doing. 
And Daniel's already prepared us in that direction. Because there have been a number of visions so far that have talked about kingdoms rising and falling. But after that, there'll be an everlasting kingdom. A kingdom that will be established by one like a son of man, that is Jesus. Well, what do we see going on here? Well, I want to take you back to one other part of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 31. So it's a little bit after the promise that after 70 years the people will be brought back. But this is in keeping with that promise. So this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. This is chapter 30. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel said. Write in a book all the words that I've spoken to you. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will bring back my people Israel and Judah back from captivity and restore them to the land that I gave their ancestors to possess, says the Lord. So here's the promise. They're going to be restored. But listen to how they're going to be restored. It's bigger than you could ever imagine. Going forward to chapter 31, verse 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel, with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. So the first covenant, the one that they were given back in Exodus, that was conditional on their obedience, that covenant couldn't produce what God wanted for his people. Why? Because they couldn't keep their end of the bargain. So God says, I'm going to make a new covenant. Verse 33, this is the covenant that I'll make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbour or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the greatest to the least, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. See, here is Jeremiah, the contemporary of Daniel, who's prophesying that there will be a return from exile. But it's not just going to be a patch-up job, it's going to be an entirely new covenant. It's going to be a covenant where the people cannot fail because God is going to do the work within them. He's going to transform them from the inside out and he's going to atone for their sin, forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Friends, for the, for the people of God who keep failing, that's the covenant that they need to hear about. For, for myself as the teenager who knows that I've done wrong against God but hasn't fully grasped that, that God has forgiven me all of my sin, past, present, future, through the death of Jesus, that's the covenant that I need to hear about. I need to hear how wonderful is the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Well, let me take you to the New Testament and see how this gets worked out in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapters 9 or 8, 9 and 10 are really a commentary on this in so many ways. L listen to these words. Actually, I'm going to go back a little bit into, uh, into chapter 8. Chapter 8 and verse 7. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. And he goes on to quote these verses from Jeremiah. A new covenant. 
where he will forgive their wickedness and remember their sin no more. And by calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. And then if we pick it up at chapter 10 and and verse uh, 15, the Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant that I will make with them after that time, declares the Lord. I'll put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. And then he adds their sins and lawless acts. I will remember no more. And where there has been forgiveness, uh, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. It's a wonderful hope that we have in Christ. This is what the people of Israel needed. And God, in his mercy, uh, kept patient with his people, putting up with their sin year after year after year after year, generation after generation. Why? Because he was going to send his son Jesus to pay for them. Hebrews reminds us that it's not the blood of bulls and goats or, or lambs or doves that takes away sin. Now, it kept pointing to the need for sin to be dealt with once and for all. And that's what Good Friday is all about. That's why it's such a good day. Because on that day, that new covenant is established. And so we we come to this passage here in Hebrews 10, that, that not only do we have a better covenant in Christ, but we have greater confidence now. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with full assurance. See, there's that word, assurance, confidence. The teenage Dave needed to know that he could be assured of being able to enter confidently into the presence of God. So long as I looked at my track record and so long as I put my hope in turning over a new leaf come the 1st of January, I would never have any confidence. But I could be assured of being able to go into the very throne room of God to confidently stand before my maker and my judge. Why? Because he has paid for sin. My debt has been cleared. All of it. And so we continue in these verses here. Let us now draw near to God in sincere heart, with a sincere heart, with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, for he who promised is faithful. We can now look forward in genuine hope. We can now look forward knowing that when we are called to stand before God, and we all will one day, whether it's Jesus returning in our lifetime or whether it's us bringing us back to Jesus through our own death, we will stand before God and we can come before him in strong, real hope because he is faithful. What does that mean? It means he'll keep his promise to us. And his promise is that if you have trusted in Jesus, then he's paid for all of your sin. See, another problem that I had as a teenager was I had sinned and not even known it. 
And I never would have prayed about sins that I didn't know about. Unless I was clever and said, and please forgive all the ones I don't know about. But ultimately, it wasn't up to me remembering every sin. It wasn't up to me saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. No, it's up to God. He says, Jesus has paid it all. And so we can come before God. We have a better covenant, a greater confidence, stronger hope and a clearer purpose. And, you know, this is where these verses come in. And we've seen these verses quite a bit during the pandemic, during our lockdown, when it says, and let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds and not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. We have great reason to gather, to encourage and spur each other on. Why? Because we've got a great God and God has done a great thing. And he's brought in a new covenant where sin is paid for, where there is a full, complete, once for all, sacrifice for all sin. Now I want to ask you, have you put your trust in Jesus? Because if you have, you can be assured that he welcomes you into his presence. And you can now come into his presence and, and, and pray and ask God to be at work. And you can look forward in hope, knowing that one day when you do stand before him, you don't need to fear whether you've been good enough. You haven't. But Jesus has. And you can trust in Jesus. And there's good reason to gather and to catch up with your brothers and sisters. And here's a key reason. That is that you might spur each other on to live in the light of that. That's what we're doing. Thank you.